Would you, t- would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45 is what we'll be reading. The Gospel of Mark has these three main sections. Uh, the first section we've been in up until now, it's, it's in this section Mark's trying to communicate who Jesus is. And, and that's from chapter 1 through uh, the middle of chapter 8. And then the final section in, verses, in chapters 11 through 16, he's communicating uh, how Jesus fulfills his identity and his role, how he becomes king. And, and in, in between these two sections, and halfway through 8 through chapter 10, there's a shorter, pivotal section connecting these two, where Jesus is, is answering both of those questions for his disciples, for, and, and taking his inner crew of people and trying to communicate them just to them just who he is and what he's come to do. And it's to this middle section that we come this morning, and we'll be in this section for the next few weeks. And as we try to communicate the the key themes and stories and grapple with what Mark is trying to communicate about Jesus through these three sections of the gospel, we jump all the way to Mark 10 this morning because in this pivotal middle section, this is the third time Jesus tries to have this same conversation with his disciples, trying to help them come to terms and understand who he is exactly and what he's come to do. The first time is in Mark chapter 8, the second is in Mark chapter 9, and then he says again here clearly in Mark chapter 10 that he has come to die. And he gives the disciples even more details this time to help it really sink in. And Jesus talks about this three times in three chapters because he sees his death as absolutely essential to the reason why he came. And he sees it as absolutely essential to the ministry of his disciples. So that being said, let's read this passage together. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. 
but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, let this profound and challenging story confront us and comfort us and change us as you see fit, Lord, and let your name be glorified in this community of your people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in this story, we see Jesus' disciples failing to understand the kingdom of God. James and John come to Jesus with almost shocking boldness and ask him to do for them whatever they want. And Jesus responds patiently and graciously, asking what it is that they want. And when he does that, they ask him for the highest positions of authority and greatness and, and power, sitting beside Jesus himself when he takes his place on his messianic throne. But that request itself reveals to Jesus that they don't get it. They aren't grasping the nature of his kingdom and what he has come to do. But before we judge them too hard, we should remember that Jesus' mission and his purpose is incredibly counterintuitive to these men. And his revelation of God's will is always surprising and marked by a reversal of values and ingrained ways of thinking. So we shouldn't be smug or condescending as we read about the, the disciples. Instead, we should look at ourselves more critically. Maybe even being skeptical of ways of thinking that we take for granted. Examine ourselves to see if there's any ways that we aren't letting the reality of Jesus sink into our lives and our thinking and our living because we are more like these disciples than we think. So we should look to Jesus with open minds and open hearts, seeking to be receptive to the, the unexpected and the challenging revelations of God's love and his power. So we see Jesus in this story, we see when, his, when he sees his disciples fighting about this shameless power grab that James and John attempted, he, he calls his dear friends over for a little talk. And he sits them down and he says, listen, listen guys, what we're doing here is completely different than what you're used to. What I'm calling you to is something far more wonderful and more strange and more glorious and more radically different than what you see going on in the world and in its kingdoms. And then he completely redefines greatness for these men. And he completely redefines how we view ourselves in relationship to others. And then he gives the ultimate example of this in himself and his cross. Jesus is calling us this morning to have our minds reshaped by his coming and his dying for us. So let's look at how he redefines greatness, because that's what James and John are after here when they make this request of Jesus. They're pursuing power and greatness. And Jesus doesn't condemn that desire. He, he doesn't. He, he just redefines what true greatness really is. Because he wants them to pursue greatness in his kingdom. He just has a particular Jesus way of doing that. He, doesn't, he, doesn't, he does want them to care about the, 
the significance and the impact of their lives. Just not the way the world does it. I know that not everyone here this morning is pursuing greatness and glory. Many of us are just fine with just getting by, just being liked, just being comfortable. Not all of you care all that much if your life makes a significant and lasting difference in the world. But you should. Because worldly pleasures and your comfort are too small of things to live for. And there's few of you that do long for greatness, for significance. You really want your life to count. And Jesus says to do that, you don't have to have a high IQ or riches or prestige or hold a lot of power and authority over others. You just need to be mastered by the love of Jesus and let his example sink deeply into your heart and be set on fire by it so that you're willing to live and die for him and for others. Because you'll never make a lasting difference seeking worldly power. You don't pursue significance and greatness in his kingdom by living for yourself and advancing your own agenda because your own glory is too small a thing to live for. Jesus defines true greatness in his kingdom as being a servant. In verse 43, he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And he contrasts this with the greatness of the worldly rulers and, consider, and those considered great in the culture. He says in verse 42, he called them over to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. And then in 43, he says, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. Jesus is highlighting two opposing ways of power and greatness. And the book of James calls these the way from above and the way from below. The book of James is actually really helpful in understanding these two ways of power. I want to look at this. You can turn there if you want in chapter 3 of the book of James. He says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James says wisdom comes from above, from God. God gives true wisdom. And also notice that the way he describes it, wisdom is not just a way of thinking like we normally think about it. It's a way of living in the world. James is describing wisdom as the way from above, contrasting it with another way that is not from above, or we could call it the way from below. The way from above is power from God. To live in this way, we embrace God's power and, and depend wholly on Him. That means embracing also our own weakness Amen. and abiding in Jesus. But the way from below 
rejects that power. Not always explicitly either. Sometimes it's more subtle. We often can fall into this way depending on ourselves and seeking autonomy. The way from below rejects Christ in favor of our own willpower. Turning to the power of self to make a difference in the world. The way from above is power for love. James says that this way is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And he contrasts this way of life with the way from below, which is power for the sake of pride and control. And it it leads to hearts that are full of jealousy and selfish ambition. And the fruit that you reap is disorder and every vile practice, he says. Whereas the fruit produced by the way from above, he says, is a harvest of righteousness sown in peace. In Jesus' eyes, which are the eyes, the only eyes that we ought to care about, the way from above is the way of true greatness. And as we are confronted with Jesus' way of defining greatness, I want to address two groups of people in the room today. They may overlap. Uh, The first group is those of you who exercise some level of authority over others. The second group is those who long to do great things for God, but have yet to to feel like they've done anything great or of significance. Okay, first, those of you who exercise authority over others. In Mark 10, in in our text this morning, Jesus talks about how people... Uh, handle authority and pursue greatness in the kingdoms and the culture of the world. And then he talks about how uh, he contrasts that with how he wants us to handle authority and pursue greatness in the counterculture of his kingdom. And having authority over others extends farther than you might think. So, to many of you, those who are employers or managers or teachers or leaders of a team, or parents, or grandparents. Some, some, if, if you have some level of natural influence over your peers and friends, you are a steward of that power. You are a steward of those people. And in this position that you're in, the way from below will call to you and tempt you, telling you that you're better, telling you that they're here for you, not you for them. Telling you that it's okay to forsake the way of love in the name of practicality and success. But in the power of the Spirit, you must resist. Because that way of thinking and living will burden you and break you as well as burden and break those whom you lead. And it will lead to destruction and the dishonoring of God. Let me give you an example of this. In Nashville, Audrey worked for a company that claimed to be Christian. And Audrey's my wife, if you didn't know. And, and it, but this, this company, even though they claimed to be Christian, was really run in the way from below. At, at one, at, it, it claimed Christian values, and they would even pray at times. But the way the leadership acted always reminded the employees that they were less important, that they weren't appreciated, The boss would bully and be rude to people if they didn't perform perfectly or if they even left on time, not staying later to to work harder. 
The values were always connected to big enterprises that looked impressive. The best example of this is when they spent tons of money and time and energy trying to buy an island to create a place to influence the influential. Deception and scheming was common, as, and it was excused in the, in the name of perception management, like lying about how many properties they had to get more investor dollars. Employees kept quitting because it was so unhealthy, but this was always downplayed uh, by highlighting the big things that were going on. When people were mistreated, they'd be reminded of how lucky they were to work somewhere so cool and great. But for Audrey, it was demoralizing and draining and endlessly frustrating. The place was run through coercion and manipulation with no trust and no compassion. The leadership fooled themselves by claiming Jesus that they were built on a foundation of rock. But in reality, they were built on a foundation of sand. And after a few years, that sand began to erode as the company went downhill. It was a clear picture of the way from below and its forms of power and success and strength with a veneer of Christianity. And I saw the truth of James 3 very clearly where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and every vile practice. It's an extreme and specific example, I know, so it's easy to separate ourselves from it. But it's been a helpful reminder in my life to try and recognize it, and you should try and recognize that where she was, that the boss at that place was blind in many ways. You may be blind in some ways. And, and where we can all deceive ourselves like this and separate Jesus from the actual way of life that Jesus lived, trying to have one without the other. And we live in ways that we think are fine or that make sense to us without actively submitting to the way of our King who came to humbly serve others and give his life for others. Leaders and those with authority over others, whatever that looks like in this room, you are called to a great responsibility. You are there to serve. Rather than just using others to help yourself succeed, you are always called to care about and think about and even ask about how you can help them succeed and help them flourish. This is the path to true greatness, Jesus says. But this is more than just for leaders and people of authority and influence. Dallas Willard is a Christian author and philosopher, and he says in his book, The Great Omission, he quotes this passage and he says this, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. By the way, it's dreadful to see this recommendation as only another technique for succeeding in leadership. Jesus wasn't giving techniques for successful leadership. He was telling us who the great person is. He or she is the one who is servant of all. Being a servant shifts one's relationship to everyone. What do you think it would do to sexual temptation if you thought of yourself as a servant? What do you think it would do to covetousness? What do you think it would do to the feeling of resentment because you didn't get what you thought you deserved? I'll tell you, it will lift the burden. This is a blessed calling. This, this call to servant greatness. And it's for all of us. So I want to address that second group I mentioned earlier. Uh, and it, 
I, I don't know if anyone's in this camp. It's just, it's from my own experience that those who have longed and even prayed to do great things for God, but have yet to do anything that feels significant or great. Because personally, for a long time, I felt this pressure to do great things for God. But I couldn't connect my ideas about those great things with my everyday mundane life. But as I've come to know Jesus more, I've realized that God's measure for greatness is not the same as mine. When we long and pray to do great things for him, we should try to remove our preconceived notions about what these things he might deem as great. According to God's ultimate and true and holy evaluation of things, greatness is most often expressed through humble and sacrificial servanthood. Not in the pursuit of power or prestige or position, We must beware of being motivated by a desire for heightened prominence or a a sense of accomplishment or worth, whether in our own eyes or in the eyes of others. Instead, we should ask for his greatness to be displayed through our lives, knowing that when he answers that prayer, it will rarely be on our terms. Listen, I I want you to know, you will never do anything great for God. It is God working in and through you who will accomplish his sovereign and loving purposes. And this is a freeing idea. It might sound harsh, but it is a freeing idea because we can get so caught up in the idea of thinking it all depends on me. And we can be so concerned with outcomes of our efforts as though we have anything to say about that. As if we can even fully know or measure those outcomes from our finite perspective. But when we are freed from these ideas, we can joyfully give ourselves to the service of our king in gratitude for his amazing grace that he has poured out on us. We are simply called to ordinary obedience to our extraordinary God, faithfully stewarding the responsibilities and the opportunities the gifts and the relationships that he has entrusted to us without concern for outcomes that we can perceive or how things appear from our perspective. God knows what he is doing. And he is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And he wants your heart. That's what he wants from you. And your willingness, he holds you in his hands. All your ways, all your days are in his holy, loving, sovereign hands. So come to terms with where he has you right now. As your post that he has ordained for you. And always be ready to move at the impulse of his love. Care well for what is right in front of you, however small or insignificant it may seem. And in God's time, he will lead you in other works that Ephesians 2 says he has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Whether these seem great and glorious or small and menial, that, shouldn't, that is not for you to worry about. He can multiply two fish to feed thousands And your acts of service are in those same hands. 
He doesn't want your works. He wants you. He wants your heart, your devotion, your faithfulness. So be careful to seek the right glory, even in this Christian life. Don't seek your own. Seek God's glory, or better yet, seek God, and he will be glorified in you. His light shining through your acts of service and your servant heart. His strength working in your weakness. His grace manifested in your brokenness. Even if nobody else sees or acknowledges your deeds, offer them to God. I promise you, he will see. And he will acknowledge you. Big or small, he will treasure what you bring him because he is your father. And in that act, he will continue to shape you, your mind and your heart into his so that you will see and understand true Jesus-style greatness. I got a book recently that I, I, I just love. Uh, it's called Every Moment Holy. And it's a collection of liturgies for normal life moments. There's one that's really meaningful to me in this stage of life as a, as a new parent. And I think it really encompasses what I've been talking about here. It's titled, A Liturgy for the Changing of a Diaper. <laughs> and it goes like this. Heavenly Father, in such menial moments as this, the changing of a diaper, I would remember this truth. My unseen labors are not lost, for it is these repeated acts of small service that like bright, ragged patches are slowly being sewn into a quilt of loving kindness that swaddles this child. I am not just changing a diaper. By love and service, I am tending a budding heart that rooted early in such grace-filled devotion might one day be more readily inclined to bow to your compassionate conviction, knowing itself then as both a receptacle and a reservoir of heavenly grace. So this little act of diapering, though in form sometimes felt as base drudgery, might be better described as one of 10,000 acts by which I am actively creating a culture of compassionate service and selfless love to shape the life of this family and this beloved child. So take this unremarkable act of necessary service, O Christ, and in your economy, let it be multiplied into that greater outworking of worship and of faith, a true investment into the incremental advance of your kingdom across generations. Open my eyes that I may see this act for what it is, from the fixed vantage of eternity, O Lord. How? Changing the, di cha the changing of a diaper might sit upstream from the changing of a heart and how the changing of a heart might sit upstream from the changing of the world. Amen. Isn't that awesome? I love how it changes our perspective, how he talks about our small acts of service being woven into a larger story of redemption that God is working in others and how God shapes our hearts through the process of learning to love well and serve well. I pray that we all have our perceptions beautifully reconfigured this morning of what greatness is. And in order to do that, we'll need to have an even more radical reconfiguring of how we view ourselves. Amen. That brings me to my next point. 
In this interaction with his disciples, Jesus redefines how we view ourselves in relation to others. In verse 44, Jesus says, Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Your translation might say servant or bondservant, but but slave is a good translation here because it, it speaks to ownership, to belonging. Who do I belong to? We should ask ourselves that question. Or perhaps more penetratingly, we should ask, in my mind, who is entitled to my time and my energy and my service? Our default answer to that is myself. I belong to me. My time, talents, and treasures belong to me. And I'm the only one entitled to them. But Jesus challenges that answer. He challenges that message that seeps into us through our culture and the message we convince ourselves is true because we like it. That my individual rights and my individual fulfillment is the most important thing and I belong to no one but me and I exist for myself. But Jesus is here to say, not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, you are not your own. I gave my life as a ransom for you. You have been bought with the price of my blood. You belong to me as my treasured possession. But not only you, all who are united to me through faith, and I give you to one another, you belong to one another. When we grasp that, grasp that we are bought with a price so that we are n- no longer our own, but that we are first and foremost God's, then we have this radical freedom to give ourselves away to others. The example of Jesus calls us to this way of life. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in that beautiful passage in Philippians 2 when he calls us to have the mind of Christ. Listen, I want to read it to you. He says, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself again by being obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus' condescension and humility and others-centered servant-heartedness is the example we are to shape our lives around, Paul is saying. He said that Jesus didn't consider there equality with God as something to be held on to. It's what you consider. It's about your mindset. Paul even says, have this mind. He's saying, think this way. Count others more significant than yourself, more deserving of your time and talents and treasures than even you are. And look after their interests rather than your own. It's pretty reminiscent of what Jesus says is the greatest commandment, isn't it? When you think about that. We'll see this later in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now really think about that second command with me for a moment. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. This love is a commitment to act for the good of others as you do it for yourself. Do you meet the needs of others with all the effort and all the energy and all the creativity and all the speed with which you meet your own need? Of course not. Not even close. But let's try a thought experiment here. Try to imagine with me right now a world where everyone did live like that. Close your eyes. Imagine every person meeting the needs of everyone else's needs out of love and affection and joy and everyone responding with perfect gratitude and mutual service. You can open your eyes. It's hard to even imagine, isn't it? But if we can try and get a glimpse of that picture in our heads, the picture of the world as it ought to be, then it's easier to see how our selfishness contributes to the brokenness of this world. But Jesus is calling us to that better way. But we have deeply ingrained habits of living for ourselves first and foremost, to the point where we don't even recognize it anymore. And so this makes Jesus' way count very counterintuitive, so counterintuitive that it takes a powerful act of grace. That's what we see in the book of Acts. We catch a glimpse of a community actually living like this. The way the author describes it is by saying he saw great grace was upon them all. Let me read it to you. Acts 4, 32 through 35. He says, Now the full number of those who believed, over 3,000, were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. And there wasn't a needy person among them. We see this community of of people in the habit of dedicating their own lives and possessions to one another. And Luke, the author, he says that God's grace is the thing that was at work animating and motivating and inspiring these people to do these things with their lives and their possessions that people normally do not do. Grace is the idea of gift and giving And and the core meaning of this in the Bible is the idea that through Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection for us, when we grab onto him in faith, what's true of him is true of us as a pure gift. God's decision to move toward us in Jesus to do that is grace. It's a gift. But Luke shows us there's even more to the grace of God. He's saying it moves people to live this way. And be so free and generous and have this wildly different perspective about whose they are and who they are and what they own. And it leads us to an awareness that I am so deeply connected to the well-being and the lives of the people in my community that it remakes what I view as mine. 
And this is God's doing inside of you. As you receive his gift, it starts to do stuff to you. Especially if you're in the habit and the rhythm of remaking your mind and reshaping your heart around the good news of the gospel through constantly reminding yourself of it in a community of faith. God's grace is not just something he did for us once. It's his power and his presence in our lives to uh, produce and generate these radically selfless behaviors. God's gracious giving of himself to us motivates and, and produces in his people the gracious giving of ourselves away. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love that it says even. Even Jesus made himself a servant and gave himself away for us. How much more should we be willing to humble ourselves and serve? And as we close this morning, I want us to examine this ultimate example of loving service that Jesus gives us. Because in, there's the two of the most central doctrines to our faith are given to us in this concise teaching of Jesus, prompting us toward the way from above. First is the incarnation. Jesus said the Son of Man came. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Holy One, the Creator of the ends of the earth, entered in to the wonder and the beauty as well as the humility and the brokenness of embodiment. The Eternal Son had body odor, and had to cover his nakedness. He had hands and feet and flesh and bone. He humbled himself to identify with us, to become one of us, to serve us, to save us. And not only do we see the incarnation, but we see the crucifixion. When, when, he, when he talks about giving his life, when the incarnate nakedness of our Lord was exposed, and the hands that he used to wash feet and heal people were nailed to a cross, and the blood that coursed through his incarnate veins was shed for us to pay the price that we racked up by our selfishness and sin, to buy us back and make us his own, the ultimate act of love and grace, and in God's eyes, the ultimate act of greatness and glory. May this be the kind of greatness we aspire to. Let's pray. Jesus, you made yourself servant of all and poured your life for us. Poured out your life for us. We set our eyes and our hearts on you in humble gratitude and seek to follow the trail that you blazed. We can only serve others in a way that honors you when it's done in devotion to you. Give us your mind. In your heart, Lord, free us from the need for the praise of others and give us 
the wisdom from above so that our love may be sincere and our service may be joyful and fearless and pleasing to you. It's in your amazing name that we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.